Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. I am Michael Bradley, and this is episode 62. This time out, we are finally back to Sunday, where we will look at the fourth storyline from the Sunday installment of the Superman newspaper strip. It's a bit of a longer story than average, uh, and fairly dense besides, so I'm just going to dispense with the requisite show opening ramble and just get right into things. Uh, right after this promo, that is, because I like to plug shows that, I'm, that I enjoy listening to. Especially this one, because it's a good show that I listen to, and you should listen to it too. Uh, but speaking of which, while we're on the subject, and since I haven't mentioned it in a while, if you have a podcast, let me know. Send me a promo, and I'll see about working it into a future episode. It doesn't have to be comic book related. Uh, obviously, that would help, since after all, this is a podcast about comic books, primarily listened to by comic book fans. But I listen to some non-comic book podcasts as well, so if you've got one, send me a link and a promo and I'll see about a plug. Sawate. My name is Stella and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Bad Girl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Bad Girl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. The fourth storyline from the Sunday version of the Superman newspaper strip was comprised of strips 19 through 30, so it was only 12 strips long, but because it only ran once a week, it took a while to get through it, Uh, namely from March 10th to May 26th, 1940, so basically all spring. During that time, pretty much everything covered on the show since November was released or published, including three issues of Action Comics an issue of Superman and the World's Fair comic, as well as a few storylines in the Daily Newspaper Strip and several radio storylines. While the length will vary from one to the next, the Sunday Strip is going to have these longer storylines for the foreseeable future. So that means trips to the world of the Sunday Strip will be few and far between, so we've kind of got to enjoy them while we have them. This one we're looking at today was written by Jerry Siegel, naturally, The majority of the strips were penciled by Paul Cassidy, with Wayne Boring being credited for strips 19 and 26, and Paul Loretta has been credited with inking presumably all of it, but who really knows for sure. Our story is titled Assassins and Spies, 
and begins as Corolia, a small, peace-loving European country, is invaded by its great, sword-rattling, totalitarian neighbor, Bangle. Back in Metropolis, Clark Kent is assigned to interview Paul Raggart, Corolia's most popular writer, who is to arrive by steamer. As Clark arrives at the pier, his superhearing overhears Raggart's name and listens in to hear three men plotting to blow up the boat and kill Raggart in order to please their superiors. Switching to Superman, Clark dives into the water and swims at an incredible rate until he meets up with the ship, which is nearing dangerously close to a mine. With only inches to spare, Superman is able to move the mine and allow the ship to pass by, much to the surprise of the plotters on the dock. Superman then waits on the bottom of the ocean for the ship to move completely out of harm's way, and then touches one of the prongs on the side of the mine, causing it to explode. As the ship's passengers deboard, the three men approach Raggart and say they are his welcoming committee, and are to drive him to a reception. Unharmed by the explosion, Superman hurries back to the pier, changes back to Clark, and then rejoins the crowd just in time to see the real welcoming committee explain that Raggart has been kidnapped. Again switching back to Superman, our hero races after the car, knowing that Raggart's life is in jeopardy. While flying, or leaping, or whatever, through the air, high overhead, Superman sees the car start to slow when Raggart is shoved from the car right into the path of an oncoming truck. Superman swoops down to the ground, snatching Raggart from certain death, and heading back skyward. Once back on the ground, Raggart explains that he came to America seeking financial assistance to help his country fend off their invaders, which is why the men, who Raggart tells Superman are Bengalian spies, tried to kill him. Superman suggests that Raggart try the newspapers and that they'll give him publicity. So later, Raggart shows up at the Daily Planet, and after speaking with Editor Taylor, Clark, and Lois, they agree to give his campaign plenty of ink. Clark and Lois then pay a visit to the morning pictorial, and the editor there, a man named Kennedy, also agrees to publicize the drive. Elsewhere, though, the Bengalian spies are aware of what Clark and Lois are doing, and one of them calls Kennedy. He claims to be from the United Corollian Relief Society, and says that Clark and Lois are really working for a racketeer. Convinced by just a simple phone call, Kennedy promptly says he can't help them and has Clark thrown out. Annoyed by Clark's cowardice and refusal to fight back, Lois then storms off. Later, having overheard the phone call with his superhearing, Clark tries to find information about the UCRS, but comes up empty. Changing to Superman, he then heads to the Corollian part of town, only to see several guys handing out flyers, notifying people about Clark and Lois's alleged racket, and saying people should donate to the UCRS instead. Since there's no address on the flyers, Superman decides that there's only one way to get information, and swoops down and begins ripping up the flyers. The two men attack with their fists, and Superman pretends to go down in order to learn more. Once the guys get in their truck, Superman starts to get up, but is promptly run over by the goons. And seeing that Superman is still coming, the guys pour on the speed, circle back around, and then slam into Superman, knocking him into a nearby utility pole before speeding off. Unfazed, Superman makes a mighty leap, landing atop the truck and going along for the ride. Apparently unseen by the people driving the truck, despite the fact that a full-grown man just landed on the truck.
But anyway, this is followed by a weird sequence. As the truck approaches a tunnel in the roadway, it's a small tunnel, you know, with not enough room for the truck and Superman to pass through. So, Superman just hangs onto the truck as it drives through the tunnel, and his body crashes through the mountain above, carving a Superman-shaped hole through the mountains, a la Looney Tunes. It's just a weird sequence in that it's far more cartoonish and, and comical than what we have normally seen in Superman stories to date. In any event, Superman then leaps from the truck into the top of a utility pole, watching the truck with his telescopic vision as it stops near a small building. With another mighty leap, Superman lands himself by the building, and after ripping a window from the side of the building, he crashes through the wall to surprise the goons, who are speaking to someone on a radio. While crushing a chair as a demonstration of what he'll do to their necks if they refuse, Superman demands that they tell him who their boss is. One of the goons pleads with Superman not to hurt them and they'll talk, when a voice comes over the radio that says, Wrong! None of you will ever talk again! Ever! And suddenly a huge explosion rips through the building. Our next strip opens with Superman standing in the ruins of the building. Nothing more is said of the goons, who seemingly were killed in the explosion. And later, Clark returns to the morning pictorial to explain that the UCRS was actually against Corolia. Kennedy says he's done some checking up himself and apologizes for his treatment of Clark earlier. When Clark arrives back at the Daily Planet, he tells Editor Taylor that he's going to Hollywood to stage a benefit with celebrities. And Lois, of course, invites herself along. Two hours later, Clark is running to catch his plane when another plane soars behind him and machine gun fire rains down on him. Clark hits the deck and bullets just bounce off his skin and the plane soon flies away. Half an hour later, Clark and Lois are leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when they'll be back again. Okay, I'll stop singing now. They're Hollywood bound at any rate, and as Lois mocks Clark for nearly being murdered, Clark spots the plane off in the distance, trailing their plane. Slipping back to the plane's storage compartment, Clark changes to Superman and leaps out the window of the plane. As Superman leaps toward the attacking plane, it hits an air pocket, causing the pilot to lose control and the plane to crash. Superman lands and inspects the damage, but then looks up to see his plane has hit the same air pocket and is now plummeting downward. Superman leaps into the air, catching the plane, and is able to guide it down to the ground safely before leaping off once more. Inside, Lois and the stewardess bang on the storage bay door, and soon the pilot and passengers gather outside the plane, surmising the situation. It seems that Superman sat the plane down in a mountain canyon, and that the pilot is unsure if there's enough room to take off. But Lois, who clearly has way more piloting experience than the pilot himself, says they should risk it, and the plane soon attempts to take off. Thankfully, Superman is on hand to give the plane a little boost, avoiding a deadly crash with the canyon walls. Superman hurls the plane like a javelin and then leaps to catch up with the plane, prying open the window and emerging a few minutes later from the storage room as Clark, only to be belittled by Lois for being a coward and hiding in the storage compartment. When Clark and Lois arrive at the Hollywood airport, they are greeted by a driver who says that someone is waiting for them. As they're being driven, the passenger compartment of the car begins to fill with a deadly gas, 
knocking Lois out. Clark plunges his fist through the floorboard, pulling the brake rod, and as the car swerves and crashes into a nearby tree, Clark leaps free with Lois in his arms. The next day, Clark visits a radio station, and the station head tells him that he supports the Corollian cause and is willing to line up stars for the broadcast, but he goes on to say that there have been strange disturbances interrupting all programs favoring Corolia, and that they've been unable to find the cause of the, you know, of said disturbances. Figuring the Bengal spies are to blame, Clark constructs, quote, an ingenious interference detection apparatus, unquote, and locates the source of the disturbance in a van across the street. As Superman, he tears into the van, confronting the two spies within, and forces them to make a full confession over the radio. The spies try to turn the tables on Superman by tossing a flaming bucket of gasoline at him, but Superman merely leaps away, leaving the spies to die in a blazing inferno. And no, I didn't make that up. Sometime later, Superman stops a plane that is attacking a parade in in support of the Corollian cause, and then returns to the radio station where Lois tells him that things are finally coming together for the benefit, but that many of the stars involved have received death threats. In another room, two men plot Clark Kent's death, saying they have rigged the microphone to deliver a 50,000 volt charge whenever he touches it. Later that night, Clark grabs the mic, but only feels a slight tingle. Apparently unconcerned that this thing could, you know, kill a normal person, Clark just leaves the mic where it is, and it's later grabbed by one of the men who rigged it, killing the man instantly. After warning a man in the studio to use another mic, and you'd think the fried corpse next to it would have been clue enough, but Clark switches to Superman, leaps off, and begins looking throughout the studio for more trouble. Finally, he comes across a man cutting cables in the control room, and after the vandal has run off, Superman uses his bare hands to reconnect the cable. Superman then heads to the roof, where he stops a couple guys from tearing down the station's tower, and then heads back down to the studio as Clark Kent, where he learns that Lois has suggested staging a circus to benefit the Corollian relief. A few days later, the circus begins, and Clark tries to talk Lois... <laughs> he tries to talk Lois out of her plan of addressing the audience from the lion's cage. And you can already tell this is going to go very, very wrong. The festivities get underway, although, given the way she treats him, I, I wouldn't at all be surprised if Clark just says, Okay, Lois, yeah, you, you go stand in the lion's cage. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea there. And then walks off secretly laughing. Anyway, the festivities get underway, and a trapeze artist attempts to do his act. However, he loses his grip on the bar and plummets downward in a way that is in no way whatsoever bearing any similarities to John and Mary Grayson. Thankfully, though, we don't get another Robin, because Superman is there in a pinch and saves the performer. Lois then enters the lion's cage. <laughs> I can't even talk about it without laughing. Lois then enters the lion's cage to and, and prepares to address the audience. But suddenly, a clown... <laughs> A clown pulls a gun and tries to shoot at Lois. Again, thankfully, Superman is there in a pinch and deflects the bullet in the nick of time. However, the shot startles a lion and an elephant who just seems to be wandering around randomly, you know, free of any sort of restraint. But both are easily dealt with by Superman before causing too much destruction. 
Superman then shores up the tent, which has, for some reason, started to fall in all the commotion, and the circus carries on as planned. After the circus, Lois tells Raggart that between the radio program and the circus, they've raised a lot of money for the Corollian Relief Fund. Still later, Superman confronts the clown who tried to kill Lois. And I have no idea why he's just now doing it, because, you know, it would have made a lot more sense to do it after he tried to kill Lois instead of waiting until the circus was over. But maybe Clark just put, you know, the entertainment of the crowd above Lois's life. I don't know. Anyway, he confronts the clown, and the clown tells him that Raggart, who we, you know, just saw in the last panel, is being held captive at a scrap iron plant. Superman goes to the scrap iron plant and saves Raggart from being crushed to death. But back at the circus, Lois also confronts Raggart to realize that Raggart isn't really Raggart, but a spy pretending to be Raggart. And a little later, Superman catches up with the train where the fake Raggart and his hostage Lois are trying to make an escape. He stops the train, saves Lois, and a little later again, Clark is back with Lois and the real Raggart, who thanks the reporters for their help in raising the money for Corolia. Yay, Superman. And yes, I breezed through the synopsis there at the end because, well, quite frankly, I was just bored with the whole thing long before I got there, which I'll talk about more in my notes here. Uh, to start off, here in Strip 19, as Clark goes to the dock, he overhears the thugs talking about Raggart. So, again, we have Clark eavesdropping on totally random conversations. On the other hand, the narration reads, As Clark nears the pier, a stray bit of conversation his super hearing picks up causes him to halt. So, the way that reads, I guess it could be taken that he just happened to hear it. Uh, not that he was intentionally listening in. He just you know, happened to pick it up like you hear bits and pieces of conversation from the people around you when you walk down the street. That I'm a little more okay with. And two, I like the idea that Clark you know, even in this era, keeps his super hearing tuned in looking for trouble. So, you know, if he heard a word like kill or bomb or, or death, or especially if he heard the name of the guy he was uh, going to pick up, that, you know, his his uh, spidey sense, for lack of a better term, would kick in. But I also want to point out that since we're in the first strip here, they are not using the refined version of the Superman logo type in the Sunday strip. Each Sunday strip is three tiers of four panels, with the top tier being a double splash panel and then two single panels. In that double panel, they always have the logo type, but in the newspaper strip, it continues to be the hand-drawn version on each individual strip until at least mid-1943. That's when the kitchen sink volume ends, and I didn't bother looking forward after that. Thankfully, though, the strip artists do a much better job of keeping it looking consistent from strip to strip than the comic books have really done to this point. Strip 21. At at the end of Strip 20, we see Superman running after the kidnappers. And then at the beginning of Strip 21, he is high in the sky looking down at the car. As Raggart is about to be run over, it says that Superman swoops down, And then in the next panel, it shows him very, very high up in the air with Raggart under his arm. This scene, and later in the story as well, when Superman jumps out of the plane on their way to Hollywood, it's clearly flight in everything but name. Comic book physics work different, yes, and I'm able to accept that. 
but this is one of the most obvious examples we've seen of this pseudo-flying that Superman has been doing for quite some time now. I kind of want to just say that Superman's flying across the board now at this point, but they've just, not to be punny about it, but they've just not taken that leap yet, even though they are slowly inching there. If it's not flying here, though, it certainly is falling with style, to quote Woody from Toy Story. Also on this page, Raggart asks Superman, What manner of creature are you? And Superman replies, Just an ordinary human like yourself, but a little more favored physically by Mother Nature. Now, I found this interesting for a couple reasons. One, Superman does not know where he's from yet at this point in the printed mediums. Or if he does, there's been no reference to it. So it's completely believable that he'd think he was a human from Earth. Superman's met no aliens, and there's not even been any indication that there are aliens in the context of the universe that Superman exists in. Well, aside from Kryptonians, that is. Now, some might argue that if his adopted parents found him in a spaceship, they might have mentioned that at some point. But at the same time, he looks human. So the logical first assumption for most would be that he was human, you know, launched from Earth and then crashed back down again, rather than being a, a being from another planet. In John Byrne's Man of Steel, when they flashed back to Jonathan and Martha finding the ship, even there they make mention of it being like the, the uh, Sputnik satellite launched by the Russians, and that now they were uh, trying things out on, on babies. So, there's that. But two, I refer you all the way back to the origin from Action Comics number one, as well as retelling since, like in Superman number one and the first episode of the radio show, where Kryptonians were described as a civilization much like our own, but highly evolved to the peak of perfection. The radio show even went so far as to say evolved to the peak of human perfection. So it seems to me that in Siegel's mind originally, Kryptonians were very much human, just you know, better, faster, and stronger than we are because they are millions of years more evolved. And while that's something quite different than what it became, it still holds in the 1940 stories that we're looking at now. Uh, this strip, Ship 21, also features the first appearance of Mr. Kennedy, the editor of the Morning Pictorial. I know we will be seeing him in at least one more story down the road. And yes, in case you were curious, this is another case of Siegel reusing a name. As you might remember, Kennedy was the name of the man murdered by Evelyn Curry uh, prior to Action Comics number one, even though we didn't learn his name until they expanded the, on the story in Superman number one. Strip 22. It seems a bit of a leap to think that Kennedy would be convinced by a simple phone call that Clark and Lois are racketeers. Um, especially since you would think Kennedy would have at least a passing familiarity with who they are, given that they are two of the top reporters from a rival paper. I guess I can go with it, given the era these stories are from, but it does seem a bit odd. And we also get another scene here of Clark feigning cowardice and getting tossed out. These seem to be coming at a, a greater and greater frequency uh, these or recently. Uh, but Clark does make a comment here, 
he says, if I have to act cowardly, I might as well just spread it on thick. So at least he's recognizing what works. He being Clark and Jerry Siegel. I do like at the end of the strip here, though, how Superman pretends the guys are taking how how Superman pretends the guys are taking him out in order that he can you know follow them back to their headquarters. That's a lot smarter to me than trashing them and then somehow magically finding out the boss's hideout on his own. And I love the expression on Superman's face here in the last panel as he's getting run over by the truck. He's just completely surprised. Strip 23, I'm not sure why Superman ripped the window frame out of the building and then crashed through the wall. It seems to me it would have been far more efficient to just crash through the wall, but that's just a minor thing that didn't really affect the story, and it could just be be a miscommunication between the script and the artists. Strip 24, okay, so Clark is running to catch his plane. He's shot at by another plane, and no one notices and I, I just have to wonder where Lois is in all of this it seems like Clark was running late so maybe Lois was already at the airport but that's really the minor issue wherever Lois was it's an airport so someone had to be around and here Clark is shot at by an airplane and it seems like no one is the wiser once they're on board the plane, Lois spends a, a full panel mocking Clark for, quote, hugging the ground, unquote. So, if she saw Clark on the ground, why didn't she see the plane that was shooting at him? It's just all very weird. Then we get to the end of the strip, and the attacker's plane hits an air pocket and crashes. And then somehow, Clark and Lois's plane also hits the air pocket, despite the fact that their plane was in front of the attacker's, so it should have hit the air pocket first. It's just very weird. Strip 25, we have this whole scene with Superman saving the plane and then helping it take off again. First, this was a pretty awesome feat. Spider-Man can beat up bad guys, the Flash can run fast, but let's see them pick up a plane and throw it one-handed. This is one of the things that makes Superman such a fun character, especially in this era. He can throw an airplane like a spear. You're not going to see Batman or Green Lantern doing that, and I loves me some Batman and Green Lantern. But second, looking at this strip, there's little here that can't be called flight, even though they're still claiming in the narration that what he's doing is merely leaping. When he catches the plane, we see him skimming along in midair, and then later... The, the plane starts to take off, and he gives it a boost, which, okay, could be a leap, but then he stops in midair and throws it. You can't do that without some kind of control over your momentum, and you can't stop a jump in midair. It's just crazy. And I know we've seen him, you know, jumping off cliffs and, and catching people who are falling. You can't really do that either. I mean, gravity doesn't work that way, but... Like I said, I, comic book physics work different, and I can wrap my mind around him being able to do that for some reason. But just, you know, stopping a, a leap in midair, I, I have a tougher time with. Thankfully, as we saw in the World's Fair comic, which actually came out shortly after this strip was published, they are finally get a, getting around to calling it flight. Uh, but we are still going to get references to, you know, his aerial maneuvers as 
merely being leaps. So, whatever. Strip 26, I loved Superman causing the, the car to crash and leaping free, still dressed as Clark Kent. That was very cool to see. It wasn't very dynamically drawn, but the panel of Clark and Lois leaping from the car is fairly fairly dynamically done. And I'm assuming the driver died. In the last panel of that sequence, we see his hand by the crashed car with the rest of his body off panel. But I'm not going to count that went on Superman necessarily because there were clearly extenuating circumstances. On the other hand, though, I will blame Superman for the death of the spies at the end of the same strip. I mean, sure, they tossed a Molotov cocktail at him, but Superman could have just as easily grabbed them and leaped away rather than just leaping off. Yeah, they probably still would have gotten severely burned, but at least they'd be alive. And then, in Strip 27, he kills the pilot, or pilots, of the plane in that strip when he grabs the plane that attacks the parade and just slams it into the ground. But they make no mention whatsoever in the dialogue or the narration that there even were pilots on the plane, but obviously there would have to be. Strip 28, I liked the scene where Superman went to the roof and stopped the guys taking down the tower. I don't really know why he went to the roof, he seems to be just patrolling the station for trouble. But in any event, these guys are cutting through the tower with an acetylene torch. He chases them off, but they've already done enough damage that it starts to fall. So he just catches the tower, writes it, and then repairs the damage by crushing the metal together with his bare hands. And sure, that's not structurally, structurally sound, but it worked in a pinch. And we really haven't seen Superman do that too much, so I enjoyed seeing it here. And that's all I really have as far as strip-by-strip notes. There are two and a half strips left, but I was pretty much just tired of the whole story by that point. There's just so much that happens in this storyline that it that is ultimately either A, ridiculous, or B, inconsequential to the overall plot, that by the time I got to the whole Raggart isn't Raggart thing, I was just way too exhausted to even do notes on it which is really illustrative of why I'm not thrilled at all with this storyline. Throughout a good portion of it, I was just bored. I mean, in the last half, or really all the story, to be honest with you, there's a lot going on. There's just scene after scene of Superman leaping from one thing to another, and at a certain point, especially towards the end of the story, it becomes a little frantic because there's just so much going on. But because there's so much happening, Siegel and the artists can't spend any time on any of it, so there's there's no real action or dynamic shots because you've got the setup and then the next panel is the resolution and he's on to the next thing. There's even a few end of the strip cliffhangers that, you know, by the beginning of the next strip are completely resolved and we're in the middle of a whole nother scene. So it's just all very frustrating in that respect. It feels like Siegel had a lot of ideas for this story as far as the neat Superman feats that he could do, but no real meat to go in between them. So it just comes off as one big frantic mess. I like Superman's super feats as much as the next guy, but there's got to be more than that. There, there's got to be reasons for these things and not just Superman leaping from one thing to another. I kind of have a feeling that Siegel is still having trouble pacing these Sunday storylines where you only get one chunk per week. 
Previous storylines have had similar problems. Um, nothing this bad, mind you, but there were pacing issues in those as well. And there were also a lot of scenes of Clark switching back and forth between his identities in this story. There were only two strips of the twelve that don't have an appearance by both Clark and Superman. So just from that, you can see how much jumping around the story does. And to be fair, it's entirely possible that Siegel was told to have Clark and Superman in as many strips as possible because they were a week apart and, you know, you kind of like with the radio show, they, they try to have that one big Superman moment every uh, every episode, even though it's one big storyline for six episodes or however many. In, in fairness, Siegel could have been told, hey, get Clark and Superman in every strip if you can. So maybe that's not his fault, but still, it it's hurting the pacing of his stories when he has to work both characters into the strip. Art-wise, the story is decent. It's very much on par with what we've seen in stories recently. There's a bit of wonkiness here and there, but, but overall, it's okay. Coloring remains interesting on these Sunday strips, with Lois again being portrayed as a redhead, as she was in the last batch of Sunday strips. So, while that's different from the comics at this point, at least it's consistent with the Sunday strip in and of itself. The coloring on the rest of the strips is much more muted than we see in the comics, though, like I might have mentioned in earlier Sunday episodes, I think that owes as much to the reproduction as it does intentional coloring choices. Superman's shield is fairly large, looking not dissimilar to how it has in the other media of late. Uh, you know, it's it's a red S on a yellow field surrounded by a red border. And the S on his cape is also present here, but is solid red, uh, distinguished from the rest of his cape only by a thin black outline, quite similar to the cape worn by the New 52 Superman. As with all the Sunday strips so far, this storyline has only been reprinted once, and that is in the Superman, the Sunday Classics, from Kitchen Sink, which is a really great volume, and I highly recommend uh, picking it up if you can find it. It's interesting looking through that book. It reprints roughly the first three and a half years of this strip, from its beginning in 1939 until mid-1943. And as you page through that volume, you can just see the art on the strip evolve. And it's just really interesting to see the progression, strip after strip. You can see the same progression looking at the dailies volumes, or the Superman Chronicles trades, or the archive editions. But with the Sunday newspaper volume, it's much more condensed, and you can really see the evolution. That same period of time takes three volumes from the dailies and considerably more from the archive or chronicles, so it can be a little harder to see the evolution, but it, it really does stand out with the Sunday volume. Hey kids, comics! Hey Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. Well, you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? You read comments. 
We read comics, that's true, that's good. Liking it, liking this pitch, carry on. Right, we talk about comics. We do, we talk about comics, we read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent, keep going. And then... We sing! Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Aches Comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com My name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of another episode. I want to thank you very much for sticking with me this time. I'm sorry the story wasn't better, and I know I shouldn't have to apologize for that, but I I do feel bad when we have stories like this that are just boring. Uh, But anyway, next episode will surely be better because Charlie Niemeyer is coming back, and we will look at yet another storyline from the Superman radio serial, this one called Alonzo Cragg, Arctic Explorer. In the meantime, please stop by the website at greatcrypton.com where you will find show notes as well as back episodes covering stories of a much better variety. The site will also give you the RSS feed and the iTunes link 
as well as links to the show's Facebook and Twitter feeds. I also want to remind you to check out the Superman homepage, as well as the Superman Podcast Network. If you want to know something about Superman, chances are pretty good that one of those two sites will take care of your needs. So check them both out, and check them both out often. And finally, I invite you to check out the other podcasts that I co-host with friends of mine. First is Green Lantern's Light, which you can find at greenlanternslight.com. And then there is Legends of the Batman, now back from its extended hiatus, and again, digging on the adventures of the less mysterious, but still totally awesome Batman. And you can find that show at batmanlegends.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
the time has come to leave you one more time. Let me kiss you, then close your eyes, and I'll be on my way. Dream about the days to come when I won't have to leave alone. About the times I won't have to say. And smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. Much better than my singing, don't you think? Yeah, me too. <laughs> 